0: Now we pray Holy Spirit that you would come and that you would breathe life into your word to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, we uh, were talking about how the ancient Greeks really enjoyed theater and how they particularly enjoyed tragedies, plays that had sad endings. Now, these days in 21st century North America, we also like going to the theater, the movie theater in particular. Um, But while some do still enjoy a good tragedy, you know, they're especially good for the Oscars. For the most part, our Hollywood big budget films are known for their happy endings. We like to see the hero defeat the bad guy or get the girl and live happily ever after. And we can see this in perhaps our favorite now, I hope, uh, quintessential Hollywood blockbuster, Star Wars. We we like to talk about that. Now, the original Star Wars certainly does have a, a very happy ending. Young Luke Skywalker, Skywalker and his friends defeat the bad guys, Darth Vader and the evil Empire and their Death Star. And that was a great movie. Everyone thoroughly enjoyed that. And it led to many sequels as well as prequels. Um... I was too young to remember the excitement that kids would have felt when they went to see the sequel to the original movie, Star Wars 2, or Episode 5, as it's now known, but we're not not—we're not going to get into that. We don't need to worry about that today. I was too young to watch Star Wars 2, and when it came out in the theater, so I can only imagine how those kids must have felt at the end of that movie. Star Wars 2 does not have a happy ending. 40 years later, it is the stuff of legend. As the title suggests, the Empire Strikes Back. And the movie ends with Luke Skywalker and his friends either captured, frozen, or falling indefinitely. And that's because the reality is being a hero isn't always easy, being a hero is stressful. It's a tough line of work. It doesn't always have a happy ending. And we see a hint of this in our final beatitude. Today we come to the ending of our journey through the beatitudes. And as it is the ending, we're just going to have a quick uh, review through our journey thus far. In the fall, we began this same journey when we began by looking at the Ten Commandments, when God spoke his law to his people, spoke the terms of their relationship. He did this through Moses at Mount Sinai. But as we looked at the Ten Commandments, we often found ourselves turning to Jesus' reflection of the law that we find in his sermon that also took place on a mountain. Jesus, God with us, was again speaking his law to his people, revealing the fulfillment of the law. That the law is more than outward actions, it's about inward intentions, it's not just about what we do, it's about what's going on in here. Jesus, God with us, revealed that the terms of the relationship between God and his people are about more than what we do, they're about who we are. The law is about the character of God's people because the law reflects God's character. Jesus began his ministry announcing the kingdom of God is at hand, and then in his first public address, Jesus, God with us, spoke to his people on the mountain above Tabgah near Capernaum and revealed what life in God's kingdom and what citizens of that kingdom look like. The Beatitudes that we've been looking at serve as the introduction to this sermon. And in them, Jesus shares what God's people look like. So over the last eight weeks, we've come to see that these eight sayings are not a random collection. They're not eight random platitudes, not just eight proverbs. These are eight beautiful truths, eight statements of fact that form a whole, that together describe the characteristics of those who've given their lives to following Jesus, the characteristics of those whose character then reflects Jesus. And the beautiful truth is that they're not imperatives, they're not requirements, they're simply truths. We don't produce these qualities in our lives. They are products of allowing Jesus to transform us through the work of His Holy Spirit to make us more like Him. And the Beatitudes describe how God's people, Jesus' followers, are blessed. They are already blessed because of their faith in Him. But they also describe how we are continually being transformed. So we've also seen how they're presented in an intentional, sequential order that describes this transformation, this journey, this pilgrim's progress towards being more and more like Jesus, so that our character does truly come to reflect His character. In the fall, we also saw how in the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments describe our relationship with God, and then the following six describe our relationship with one another. The Beatitudes follow a similar pattern. The first four describe our approach to God, the next three our approach to one another. But as we come to the end of the Beatitudes, to the end of this announcement that the people of God are blessed because They reflect these eight different characteristics. The last announcement is not quite as happy of an ending as we might like. Last week we saw that if the first seven Beatitudes describe the characteristics of those who follow Jesus, the eighth describes the consequences. Jesus describes this consequence saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says again, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are some who might argue that those are two different beatitudes, that there's nine altogether, or that might just leave off the last one because Jesus is really repeating himself. But that repetition is important. This is a double beatitude. It is repeated, restated. Jesus was making sure that everyone in earshot of his voice got the message, heard and understood this important statement of truth. What's most interesting about this repetition is that though the first statement begins like all the others, blessed are those, when Jesus repeats this, he changes the those to you. Jesus is making it clear to everyone in earshot of his voice, This is not about some other group of people. This is not about them. This is about you. This is about all who follow Jesus, all who hear these words. This is about us, you and me. And Jesus is saying to us, you will find yourself in a difficult place because of me. Jesus is saying to us that persecution is inevitable. For the followers of Jesus, that being a follower of Jesus is a tough line of work. And as Jesus alludes to, this has always been the case. And we can see that even when we read the Old Testament, that many of the Old Testament prophets suffered because of their calling to bring God's word to the people. And through this, we see that it was well understood by Jewish believers, by those who were listening to Jesus on the Mount that to suffer for God was virtuous, and we read this throughout the Psalms. Judaism honored those who were martyred in the service of God. But then when Jesus came, it had been over 400 years since God had spoken to his people through the prophets, so most Jewish people at the time didn't believe that prophets in the Old Testament sense still existed. So then, when Jesus came along and started comparing the calling of his followers to the calling of the prophets, it was eye-opening. It was significant. It signified that Jesus' followers were being called to an extraordinarily, incredibly important mission. Jesus' followers knew that to suffer for God was virtuous and martyrs were honored, but no other teacher, no other rabbi had ever called disciples to suffer, to die for his own teachings in his name. This was something new, perplexing, and significant. Jesus made it clear from the beginning of his ministry that suffering is to be an expected part of our journey as we follow him, an expected part of our pilgrim's progress an expected part of Christian living. And we heard this today in Paul's letter to Timothy, where Paul explains, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This has been the case for Christians since the beginning as we see in the treatment of God's prophets and as we see in the world's reaction to Jesus himself, both in the past and even now in the present. Jesus is saying to us that persecution is inevitable. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That persecution is inevitable because he was persecuted. Persecution is inevitable for the followers of the one who was persecuted. And in our gospel reading today from John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Jesus says those who follow him will be persecuted because of righteousness. Because they are righteous, because they bear his righteousness, because they reflect his righteous character. And because Jesus experienced this persecution, this opposition first, because he was righteous, because the mere presence Of righteousness of justice of goodness exposes wickedness injustice evil this calls for change once evil is exposed we have to deal with it somehow but that of course disturbs the status quo and then the ones who were benefiting from the status that they gained from the status quo the Pharisees opposed the need for change that Jesus exposed and so then opposed Jesus himself Jesus had come along and he challenged all the man-made rules that the Pharisees had developed around God's commands. He was the one who was living out kingdom values. He was performing miracles, healing lepers, forgiving sins, upending tables of those profiting off people, worshiping God in the temple. This all upended the way they were used to having things, their social order. Jesus taught, demonstrated, and lived out God's way, but this confronted and upended the world's way, the world's desire to be able to say, I did it my way. So Jesus warns, when we follow in his footsteps, when we challenge the status quo, when we don't submit to the way of the world, we stand to face opposition, persecution. Jesus also experienced opposition because he says, Follow me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a very loaded statement, but it challenges the world's opinions on who God should be, who they think God should be, who We sometimes think God should be. It challenges our desire to do things my way. Now most in our culture believe that a pilgrim's progress is a personal journey towards discovering God and that that destination is personal as well. This is a belief on which we've reflected on before that we can fashion an image of whatever God we choose as we would have him be. But Jesus says there's only one way. There's no other name by which we're saved. And to our culture, that sounds like intolerance. And more than any other reason, it's for this intolerance, for not accepting that which Jesus does not accept, that Christians today face persecution. And so when Jesus announces blessing on those who are persecuted, who are insulted, against whom people falsely say all kinds of evil because of righteousness, he's talking about more than just being good. He's talking about a whole orientation of life towards him and his will, a life in relationship with him. But he's also warning that living life in this way is conspicuous, it's different It challenges the status quo, and it will attract persecution. Now, that persecution may be less when there's been more of a Christian influence on the laws and cultural values of a society, as has been the case here in Canada and throughout most of our Western society. Canada was founded on Christian values, whether they still like to admit it or not. And so the church has suffered very little persecution in this country until more recently for many years the christian church has been esteemed in our country but as the values of our nation do continue to shift and change and no longer align perfectly with what the bible says organized religion and especially the bible is increasingly falling out of favor even Among some in the Christian church. And this month, we do remember how 15 years ago, the founders of Open Gate Church challenged the status quo, did not submit to the ways of the world, and because of this, faced opposition and persecution and gave up and lost much, all for the sake of righteousness for the sake of just staying true to the Word of God. And now, as we do find ourselves in a country that is increasingly distancing itself from Christianity, where to speak, a country where to speak words of anti-Semitism are still, thankfully, uh, met with public outcry, rightfully so, please don't misquote that, um, but to publicly say the same things about Christians either goes ignored or is publicly applauded. And there may come a time when it may be illegal to take a stand like the one this church took 15 years ago. When it may be illegal to believe some of the things that the Bible teaches. What will we do then? That's the situation we find ourselves in the West here in Canada. However, in other parts of the world, it's much different. The unbelieving world will always remain hostile to the gospel. And our church supports one missionary whose correspondence to us can't be posted online because it's too dangerous. Because he and his family serve in a part of the world where being a Christian and sharing the gospel is dangerous. And there are numerous countries throughout the world where Christians are denied basic human rights because of their faith. There are still numerous places in the world where Christians are still frequently martyred. For their faith. David Fuller just shared a story with me before church of a a bishop who was martyred in Africa. Just a few years ago, we all watched in horror the public executions of Christians at the hands of the terrorist organization, ISIS. This is still happening. When Jesus calls us to follow him, to follow in his footsteps and carry our cross, we recognize that it is a burden. We recognize that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But Jesus also wants us to recognize that his footsteps lead us to the cross, that many of his followers have been called to lay down their lives in his name. This is the warning Jesus presents at the end of Of the Beatitudes. Not the happiest note on which to end. Being a follower of Jesus is a tough line of work. But thankfully, in the same breath, Jesus also shares that we can view this persecution as a good thing. Because it strengthens our faith, it keeps our orientation on what matters, on Him. Jesus says that when you face this kind of persecution, you can rejoice. And be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus says to be happy when we're persecuted for our faith. One commentator writes that persecution can be good because it takes our eyes off earthly rewards. It strips away our superficial belief. It strengthens the faith of those who endure it. And our attitude through it serves as an example To others to follow, just as the life of God's greatest prophets serve as an example to us—the lives of Elijah, Jeremiah, Daniel, who all endured great persecution. Jesus concludes by reminding us that we can be comforted knowing this, knowing that we have all been called to the same important mission, to the same mission as these great servants of God. Jesus concludes the beatitudes with this promise. That those who are persecuted, those who have picked up their cross to follow Jesus, those who are beatitude people, who have allowed themselves to be transformed by Jesus, whose character is a reflection of Jesus, because they have allowed him to take a hold of them and transform them, they are blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this final promise doesn't just apply to the final beatitude, it does encompass all eight as do all eight promises. Again, it's not just a list of options. This is one composite whole, one description of God's people in God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So then where and when do these promises come true? Where is this kingdom of heaven? When do we get this reward? Now there is great temptation to just answer simply in heaven, after death, Jesus certainly does present this promise, this blessed assurance that when we die, we will join him in heaven. This is a reward reward for following him that is worth looking forward to. But that's not all he's talking about. When Jesus came announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what did he mean? Well, the clue to this comes a little bit later on in his sermon, in the prayer that Jesus taught his followers. Jesus taught us that we are to pray that God's kingdom will come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to pray that the life of heaven, the life of the place where God's will is already done, would become the life we experience here on earth, the life of the whole world, transforming not just us, not just Jesus' disciples, but the whole world, all people, all nations, all cultures, back into the world that God always intended. And those of us who follow Jesus are to begin to live by this rule here and now, And that is the point of the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes in particular. They are a summons to live in the present, now, right side up, in an upside down world. To live in a way that will make sense in God's promised future, in a way that will look right side up in a right side up world, as God promised the world will one day be again. And praying for this means as we've reflected on during our journey through the Beatitudes, that when we're feeling spiritually bankrupt, grieving, burdened, starving, guilty, empty, in conflict, persecuted, in this upside-down world, the only thing that we can do is recalibrate and turn to Jesus in prayer and ask that He would take hold of us, transform us, and make us right-side-up again, Make us those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In this upside-down world, the only thing we can do is recalibrate, turn to Jesus and pray that He would make us citizens of His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. As we mentioned earlier, today marks the first Sunday in the season of Lent, and as we observed last year and do every year, Lent is a season during which we do recalibrate, during which we turn our focus away from the things that draw us away from God and back to Jesus. And so as we enter this season of Lent, let it be with this prayer that as our savior taught us that god's kingdom would come and that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven and so together now let's pray as our savior taught us we pray together our father Hallowed be your name your kingdom come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. The kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours. Now and forever. Amen. Amen. And now we're going to continue in prayer.